We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to return to our study of this great Gospel that we started uh, this past fall. And uh, if you are just joining us this morning, uh, this is your first time at Lakeside, we spend the majority of our time uh, together in God's Word on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights going through books of the Bible. And I feel like that's the way God inspired His Word through books and prophecies and letters and, and uh, really historical accounts. And so we feel that's the best way to study it, the best way to get to know it, and ultimately the best way to get to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we are uh, having uh, taken a break at the end of April. Uh, we, we made it through chapters 1 through 5, so we're already... Um, here to chapter 6, and that's what we're going to dive into today, and we're going to have the opportunity to look at two of the most well-known miracles that Jesus ever performed, the feeding of the 5,000, and when he walked on the water. These two miracles happened back-to-back on the same day, and John included them here in his gospel as the, the fourth and fifth sign of a total of seven signs that, in his mind, most clearly proved the deity of Christ and would most likely produce faith in his life and death leading to eternal life. And uh, again, if you're just uh, joining us this morning, the, uh, John makes it very clear why he wrote this gospel for one purpose. He says in John chapter 20, verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so based on John's thesis statement, if you will, his purpose statement for his gospel, we have chosen to title our study in the gospel of John simply Believe and Live. That's what this is all about. It's all about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and in so doing, living, living abundant life here and now, and then living eternally forever in heaven with Him. Now, what is unique about the two signs that John records here in chapter 6, he's already recorded Uh, how Jesus turned water into wine, how he healed the nobleman's son, and how he healed a paralytic. We saw that uh, in chapter 5, the man by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Uh, What's unique about these next two miracles is that miracles just like these occurred repeatedly throughout Israel's history. In fact, some of the most epic moments in God's dealing with his people involve supernatural events involving food and water. Just think about what you know of the Old Testament and maybe God's workings with the nation of Israel. Uh, For instance, when God delivered his people from bondage to to Egypt, you remember he miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea so so that they could escape Pharaoh and his his, uh, pursuing army. After journeying uh, several days into the wilderness, they became thirsty, but the only water they could find to drink was too bitter. And so God directed Moses to a particular tree, and he threw it in the water, and it miraculously became sweet to drink. Shortly after that, when the people began to complain about being hungry, God miraculously provided manna for them to eat every morning and quail for them to eat every evening. A number of times, God demonstrated his miraculous power by 
using Moses to cause water to gush forth from rocks uh, to quench the people's thirst. You'll remember when the, the time when the Israelites were to enter the promised land, God actually parted the waters of the Jordan River so that they could pass through uh, into the land flowing with milk and honey. There's other times when God miraculously multiplied food, like the time when the prophet Elijah promised the poor widow that if, he, uh, if, if she made him a meal, that that little bowl of flour and that jar of oil that she thought she was about to run out of, and then her, her, her son and, her, and herself would die, he, he said it would never be empty. And that was true. It just continued to be replenished as she continued to serve him and others. Also, Elisha, um, which was Elijah's uh, protege or uh, under, un, under a, a servant, um, Elisha, he, he instructed a woman who was about to lose her two children to a creditor if she didn't pay her debt that she owed. He told her to collect as many containers as she could find, and, and that one jar of oil that she owned didn't run out until all the containers were filled. It just kept flowing and flowing and flowing. So multiplying food and manipulating water are woven into the very fabric of God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus shows up in the New Testament and had the power to perform the same kind of miracles involving food and water, you would think that would have served as obvious proof to the Jews that he was God. And yet, as we learn in chapter 5, after Jesus healed the invalid on the Sabbath day, rather than praising him, they began persecuting him and looking for a way to kill him. Look back at chapter 5, verse 16, just to remind you where we've come from. Chapter 5, verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Don't ever let anybody ever tell you that God, that Jesus never claimed to be God because he did. And this is one example here in John chapter 5. And so we have, beginning here in chapter 5 and going all the way to chapter 10, John records the increasing opposition to Jesus, which would climax in his rejection in chapters 11 and 12, which led him to retreat with his disciples to the upper room, uh, to what we have, what we know as the upper room discourse, right, in in chapters 13 through 17, and that's where we're heading. But uh, in the meantime, uh, we have seen the incarnation of the Son of God in chapter 1, the presentation of the Son of God, and now we're looking at the opposition to the Son of God in chapters 5 through 10. And this chapter, chapter 6, is significant because it shows us that even though the Jewish religious leaders were wanting to kill Jesus, many of their own people wanted to make him king. And yet, as we're going to see, by the end of this chapter, a large majority of those people who wanted to make him king eventually decided they no longer wanted anything to do with him, while his true disciples renewed their commitment to keep following him. We're going to see that at the end of of this lengthy chapter. But with all that in mind, let's take some time this morning just to look at these two miracles that Jesus performed back to back 
And I believe he did them, first of all, to pique the crowd's messianic hopes and to also prove to his disciples that he was the Messiah. That's why he performed these miracles. And so let's look, first of all, at multiplying food. We'll just call it multiplying food. If you didn't grab an outline in the back when you came in, you can feel free to get one now, and you can just follow along uh, as we go. And there's some application questions on the back. You can ask yourselves uh, later this week in your quiet time, or maybe in your grow group tonight or another time this week. But let's look, first of all, at multiplying food, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, know this, that besides the resurrection of Jesus, which was the ultimate miracle, right? Him raising from the dead, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. So that, should, that alone should point to its significance as a sign which Jesus would go on to explain in his lengthy discourse on the bread of life that we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week in verses 22 through 58. One commentator said this, although all of Jesus' miracles were astonishing, The feeding of the 5,000 demonstrated his creative power more clearly and impressively than any other miracle. And in terms of the sheer number of people it affected, it was the largest of his miracles. And so let's look at how John describes this. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, After these things... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now, whenever you see the phrase after these things, you have to ask yourself, well, what things? Obviously, the immediate context is after healing the man at the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem and attempting to defend his deity to the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to kill him, Jesus returned to his home region of Galilee where he had, a, had greater freedom to minister. Now, this chapter, uh, chapter 6 of John, is the only place where John mentions in his gospel uh, about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which is sort of strange uh, because uh, he ministered there for about a year and a half, spent the majority of his time, or at least half of his time, uh, in his public ministry, ministering in that northern region of, of Israel. Now, the other three gospels, they include a lot of, of what Jesus did during uh, that time in, in Galilee. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, at least six months or so had passed since the events of chapter 5. So just in that white space between chapter 5, verse 47, and chapter 6, verse 1, just know that there's at least six months that have passed. And a lot of significant things had occurred. For instance, John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod who was now seeking out Jesus because someone had suggested that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. And he was a little nervous about that. And so he wanted to find out who this Jesus was. The disciples had just returned from a successful preaching tour throughout the region of Galilee. And so Jesus may have been seeking some time away with his disciples to rest and to debrief after their preaching tour and maybe even to grieve over the loss of his cousin John, who had so faithfully served as his forerunner but was now dead. And so he and his disciples retreated to the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is known today as the Golan Heights. And I don't know how familiar you are with the, the region of Israel, but uh, the way I always try to picture it is that you've got, this, you've got this Sea of Galilee, this big lake, and you've got the Jordan River, and you've got the Dead Sea, and you've got 
Jerusalem over here just at the tip of the Dead Sea, and then you've got the, the Sea of Galilee, and then you've got, of course, the Golan Heights, right? We know, we know about the Golan Heights because of all the wars that have taken place over the years in Israel. And so they were uh, in the Golan Heights region. Now, it's interesting that they call this the Sea of Galilee because it really isn't a sea. It's actually a freshwater lake located about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. But because of its size... Um, being seven miles wide, 12 miles long, and 150 feet deep at some points, uh, they refer to it as a sea. Um, And if you ever have the opportunity to see it, it does look more like a sea than it does a lake. They called it um, the Lake of Gennesaret, as well as the Sea of Tiberias, as as, uh, John records here, uh, because Tiberias which served as the capital city of Galilee, was the dominant city on its western shore. And Herod Antipas, the Roman governor who ruled over the province of Galilee and Perea, built the city and named it in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And so that's why John says it was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberius. Notice verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so here was this much-needed retreat um, that Jesus had planned with his disciples, rudely interrupted, right, by a large crowd of people who got wind of their whereabouts and showed up uninvited, hoping to see him perform some more miracles. And uh, we know that uh, Jesus' popularity had increased during the past six months, probably uh, largely due to the, the disciples going around and preaching about Jesus and who he was and what he can do. And so that helps explain this, this enorm- where this enormous crowd came from that had gathered on this occasion. And yet these people who appear to believe in Jesus, we're going to see by the end of this chapter that their faith was not genuine. These are the people in the region of Galilee who are like the people down in Judah or around Jerusalem, who it says in John chapter 2, believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. In other words, they had superficial faith. They were more interested in what Jesus could do for them, right, rather than who he was as a person. Someone wrote this, and I think makes a good point. He said, a faith founded on miracles is never as pleasing to God as that which is founded on his word alone. God's word should not require miracles to verify it. Anything God says is true, it cannot possibly be false. That should be enough for anyone. This is all we need right here. Our faith in God and his son Jesus Christ should be founded on his word and his word alone. We shouldn't need miracles to verify that this thing is true. It is true. Look at verse 3. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Now whenever the Passover is mentioned in the Gospel of John, uh, it's, it's really useful as a time marker to determine where Jesus was actually at in his ministry. Uh, We know his ministry lasted about three years. This is the second time uh, that that John mentions the Passover. The first one was back in chapter 2. He's going to mention it again in chapter 13. And so all that to say, the events in chapter 6 here that we're looking at, um, 
took place about a year before Jesus was crucified. So that's kind of where he's at in his ministry. Now, the Passover, as you know, was, was the annual celebration uh, of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And so whenever it got around Passover time, uh, the Jews got excited, right? And, and their nationalistic feelings would, would, would increase, which, which may have been the reason why the crowds were so ready to crown Jesus king in order to deliver them from bondage to Rome. And so both Jesus and the people had Passover on their brains, and uh, this created an, an, an ideal environment for him to present himself to them as the bread of life, which we're going to see uh, next week. Look at verse 5. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? So you see the setup here. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews was near. There was going to be a lot going on regarding bread, right? Unleavened bread, bread this, bread that during the, the Passover. And he says, so therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these made? He's, he's capitalizing, Jesus is capitalizing on a teachable moment. Not just for the crowds, but also for his disciples. And so I'm personally convicted just by that verse uh, in that rather than resenting the invasion of his privacy and, and, and being frustrated by the interruption of his little mini vacation with his disciples, Jesus, it says in Mark chapter 6, felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so here Jesus was with his disciples and he turns around and he sees this mass of humanity coming to him and all he could see was sheep without a shepherd. These people needed direction. They needed instruction. They needed to be fed. They needed to be cared for. And his first thought was to provide them some food. Since it was later in the day and in their rush to find Jesus, they had forgotten to make plans for supper. And so he turned to Philip, who may have been the administrator of the disciples, and asked him where they might purchase bread to feed the hungry crowd. Now, the other Gospels tell us that the disciples actually came to Jesus first and said, hey, Jesus, you need to send these people away so they can find food in the neighboring villages. And, uh, and Jesus immediately responded. He says, you get them something to eat. That's your job. That's your responsibility. You get them something to eat. And apparently, he specifically directed that question to Philip. And he says, hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, Philip was the logical person to ask this question since he was from this area. He was from Bethsaida. We know that from chapter 1, which was the closest town to where they were uh, located at the time. And so surely he would have known where the closest Sam's Club, right, or Costco was, right, to buy food for all these people. And look at verse 6. This he was saying to, what? Test him for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And now, again, John's, John was an eyewitness of this whole thing. Not only the feeding of the 5,000, but also the, the walking on the water. John saw this with these, these two miracles with his own eyes. <coughs> and so he's writing now in hindsight, and he realized now that Jesus didn't ask Philip that question because he didn't know what to do. He already knew the answer to his own question, but he asked Philip, that question to test his faith. 
And I think this is a good reminder for us as followers of Christ that we shouldn't expect to just be able to meander through life without any challenges, without any difficulties. Christ will regularly test us because he's more concerned about our growth than he is about our comfort. And and Christ's followers, his disciples, learned that lesson when they were following him when he was on earth. And after he went back to heaven, they passed on that same principle with those that they wrote to. For example, James chapter 1, verse 2, he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God knows that there's areas in our lives that are lacking and need to be filled up. We need to be filled up where we're lacking, and so one of the primary means that he grows our faith, he strengthens our faith, he fills up what is lacking in our faith is he brings trials and tests into our lives. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so again, a good reminder for us that, that don't be surprised if Jesus tests you, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you've got to expect to be tested from time to time. Notice Philip's response to this test. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And based on his response, we learn about Philip's personality. He seems to be a, a more of the, on, the, on the analytical side, right? Maybe a bean counter of sorts. Probably took out his pocket calculator, made some calculations, right? Decided that even 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to provide everyone just a bite to eat. Now, denarius was the average daily wage in those days. So 200 denarii was about eight, eight months pay. That was a lot of money. And so what Philip was saying that, man, even if we knew where to find food or to buy bread, no one could afford it. I mean, it would take a fortune. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? According to Mark's gospel, Jesus had commanded the disciples to go and assess their resources, to look into the crowd and find out what, what might be available. And Andrew apparently noticed a, a little boy with five barley loaves and, and two small fish. Now, don't let the word loaves confuse you, okay? We're not talking about a loaf of like Mrs. Baird's bread, okay? John, that was a commercial for you, man, all right? Um, But these were like barley loaves. These were like small. This is what poor people would eat. This was a little boy's lunch, if you will. And probably the way to think about them, this would be like uh, the size of five scones and two sardines. Not a lot to work with, right? Right? Uh, This wouldn't even have been an appetizer for the 12 disciples, let alone an entire meal for thousands of people. And so we can assume that 
because none of the other disciples are mentioned here, um, they weren't any more helpful or hopeful in coming up with a solution to this food dilemma, which ultimately revealed a lack of what? Faith. Why? Because they had already witnessed Jesus performing all sorts of miracles, particularly one in which he turned water into wine. So he knew what to do when food ran out, right? Or there wasn't enough of something. He was able to multiply. And yet no one suggested that Jesus simply perform a miracle, which is what he had always intended to do from the beginning. And so, again, just from a human perspective, the disciples were looking at their limited resources And so it looked like a hopeless situation with no possible solution. But we need to remember that that our inadequacy serves as a perfect opportunity for God to put on display his sufficiency. And that's why we love God's response to Paul, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when Paul begged God to remove the thorn in his flesh. Three times he asked God to take it away. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul said, most gladly then, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. In other words, the weaker you are, the stronger God is. The less you have, the more glory God gets. And I appreciate what Bruce Milne suggests here. He says, quote, our instinct is to put ourselves down and demean what we have to offer, particularly when measuring it against raw human need. When you consider the need, when you consider the need, wherever it is, and you think, Lord, I'm just one person. I can't meet this need. Who am I to think that I could meet this need? But if we will believe Milne says, sufficiently in Christ's gifting to trust him with our whole selves, he will take us, break us as need be, and offer us to the Father as in his hands the resources multiplied and a multitude fed. He said the key beyond our believing in God's ability and will to use us lies in the wholeheartedness of our surrender to him. And then he uses the example of William Booth, who was the man that God used to, to uh, develop the, the Salvation Army. He says, William Booth's secret is an open one. When asked to explain the phenomenal impact of his life, he simply replied, quote, for the last 80 years, God has had all there is of William Booth. And so through him, Christ literally fed a multitude of people and continues to. And so again, the point is that when we come to the end of ourselves and we don't know what else to do, that's when God steps in and does what only he can do and he provides for us. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. So here's Jesus inviting the people to sit down on the grassy hillside. According to uh, Mark, Jesus instructed them to sit together in groups of 50 and 100 to make it easier for the disciples to distribute the, the food in an orderly fashion. And this was important since there was at least 5,000 men. And if there was 5,000 men, 
there was probably an equal amount or more of women, wives, um, children, maybe um, single ladies, widows. And so I think a conservative estimate would be that there was likely between 10,000 to 20,000 people actually in this crowd that needed to be fed that day. This is more than the feeding of the 5,000. This is probably the feeding of the 10 or 15,000. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. According to, to Matthew and Mark, Jesus took the five loaves and, and two fish in his hands and before he distributed them, he looked up to heaven and he thanked God for them. And if you ever wondered where the biblical precedent was to say grace before you eat, this is it. Here you go. That Jesus, this is just one example of where Jesus prayed before a meal. And, uh, and why do we do that? Why do we pray before meals? Well, we're simply thanking God for his provision, for the food that he's given and asking him to bless it and use it to nourish and strengthen us. You're simply acknowledging that you know that it's come from the Lord. And it's one more example of his tender, faithful care of your life. After he finished praying, he began breaking that bread, those five barley loaves and those two fish into pieces and he kept handing them to the disciples and as the creator God, he miraculously multiplied the food so that everyone had as much as they wanted. I mean, this is like an all-you-can-eat buffet, okay? This is like Ryan's. This is like Golden Corral. This is like furs. This is like whatever, man. It's like you have as much as you want. And then look at verse 12. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. We don't want anything to go to waste. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. I mean, there was, there, was, there was more leftovers than there was food to begin with. Just to show that his provision, Christ's provision, is more than adequate to meet our needs. I don't want to read too much into the 12 baskets, but there were 12 disciples. And this may have been a, a lesson for the disciples. Hey, guys, trust me. Right? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. You're wondering what we're going to eat tomorrow? There you go. You got your little basket of food for tomorrow. Provision for the next day. Now, I don't think I need to tell you, but liberal scholars who don't believe in miracles have to come up with some natural explanations for what happened here. And while they may be well-meaning, they're frankly ludicrous. I've, I've told you about uh, how some say that Jesus was standing in front of a cave that they had secretly stockpiled with food ahead of time because they knew that this crowd was on their way. And so they said, oh, well, watch this. We'll, 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 we'll trick them and we'll get them to think that you're a miracle worker. And so we're gonna get all this food and we're gonna get, in, we're gonna get one of the disciples in the cave and he's just gonna be handing you food out kind of under your arms and you're just gonna look like, you know, like a magician, you know, the sleight of hand. I'm not kidding, okay? That's what some people, that's the lengths that some people go to to explain away this miracle. Another more spiritual sounding 
suggestion is that when the crowd saw the little boy give his five loaves and two fish to Jesus, they were so convicted of how selfish they were uh, about hiding their own food that they had actually had with them, they decided to take out their food and share it with each other, and there was enough food to go around. And so they say the real miracle took place in people's hearts. Well, that's just sappy and stupid, okay? I'm sorry. I like what Ken Hughes says. He says it's very interesting that in a passage that is trying to elevate our concept of Christ, this interpretation comes from a defective concept of Christ. He says the doubters have taken their Christ and imposed him onto this passage of Scripture. Their problem is the problem the passage is trying to correct. That's the whole point of this passage is to exalt our view of Christ. And to say, yes, look at his power, that he can perform miracles. And they're saying, no, he can't perform miracles. Well, that's why these kinds of texts are in the scriptures. For those people that don't think he can. Besides, the crowd's response to what happened proves that this was indeed a miraculous uh, event. Look at verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And so when they saw this miracle performed, it probably reminded them of of, of something that they learned about in their their history when when Moses would miraculously provide them with food to eat in the wilderness. And and it was Moses who had made a promise back in Deuteronomy 18.15 that there would come a day when God would raise up another prophet like him who would deliver his people. And so they're, they're making this connection between Moses, this great deliverer, and Jesus, who, who was this great deliverer. We're going to see they make another connection, another link in, in, chap, in, in this same chapter in verses 30 and 31. But what was going through their mind was, hey, Moses had fed his people or God's people and led them out of bondage to Egypt, and since Jesus has the ability to feed people, they assumed that he would also lead them out of bondage to Rome. And you know what? They were right in that Jesus was that prophet that Moses had promised. In fact, the apostles and um, some of the other men who preached the gospel in the early days of the church referenced the same verse, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Listen to Peter in in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So Peter is using the same verse. And, 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 like, and, and comparing it to Jesus and saying Jesus is a fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. Stephen said the same thing before he was stoned in his defense of, of his faith in Christ in Acts chapter 7. And so they were right, but they were wrong all at the same time. Their, their timing was off. And their understanding was off. And they had assumed that this prophet that Moses promised 
would be a military conqueror who would overthrow the Roman government and reclaim the land of Palestine for Israel. And so they wanted Jesus to serve as their political leader and meet all their physical and material needs. I mean, they were, this would have been the ultimate welfare state, right? No one would have to work. They would just have to follow around and, and Jesus would be just doing miracles all the time to feed everybody, right? Notice verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And so here the people were, were, were getting aggressive in, in their uh, response to Jesus' miracles, and they wanted to make him king. And yet he refused because he knew that that wasn't God's plan at that time. And rather than launching a political revolution to free the Jews from, from Rome's domination, God sent Jesus for the purpose of launching a spiritual revolution to free mankind from sin's domination, and the domination of, of death and, and, and hell. And so Jesus knew that he had come to die on a cross as a substitute for sinners, and only after would he ascend to the throne. And before he was to be exalted, he had to be executed. We know this wasn't the first time or the last time that Jesus was tempted to bypass the cross to get to the throne, to receive the kingdom. And each time he responded with similar revulsion and rejection of that thought. Matthew chapter 4, remember Satan on the, in the wilderness? It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you just fall down and worship me. In other words, I'll give you all this if you just fall down and worship me. But Jesus knew that wasn't the plan, right? The way he was going to receive that kingdom was through his death and resurrection. And Satan was trying to somehow subvert that and to keep Jesus from dying on the cross and rising from the dead and sealing his doom in hell forever. And so Jesus said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Later on, when Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to be crucified, Peter, as typically he did, jumped up and basically said, That will never happen over my dead body. I'll never let that happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus said, Get thee behind me. Who? Satan. So even Peter's, one of his own disciples, was trying to stand in the way of the cross. And so because of Christ's compassion for the people, he was willing to meet their needs at this time, but because of his conviction of his calling, he was unwilling to give in to their demands. And so he quickly diffused the, the mounting pressure and in order to keep things from escalating even more, according to Matthew and Mark, he, he actually made the disciples leave immediately and get in the boat and uh, get out of there. And uh, he dismissed the crowd himself and then withdrew into the mountains to pray. And this is when he performs the second miracle, right on the heels of the first miracle. And we've seen him multiplying food. Now let's look quickly at him manipulating water. 
Verse 16, verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. So the disciples had gotten into the boat, just like Jesus had commanded, and they began to travel back across the Sea of Galilee to, uh, to Capernaum, which was on the, the northwest shore, the opposite side of the Golan Heights. And yet it says they were struggling to make it across because of this strong wind that had picked up and the boat was being battered by the waves. And if you don't know about the Sea of Galilee, it is a very interesting, uh, unique topography. It's 600 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by hills that rise up some 1,200 to 1,500 feet above sea level. And so you've got this, this depression that this lake is sitting in, and so whenever the winds come from the Mediterranean Sea or down through the Jordan Valley, they just rush down these, these hillsides out onto the lake, and it's, and it's often, you look out on the, the Sea of Galilee, and it's all white caps. Looks more like the ocean than it does a lake. And so naturally, it would have been dangerous to be out on this lake in a small boat during a storm like this, and yet the disciples had already experienced a storm far worse than this, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the, the, uh, the time when Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat, exhausted from uh, the ministry, humanly speaking, exhausted, right? And there was this violent storm, and the disciples were doing everything they could to save themselves, and finally they woke up Jesus and said, don't you care? We're going to die, and you're there sleeping. And Jesus said, oh, you have little faith, right? And he spoke, and hush, the storm went silent. So they had already experienced this. Once. And according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus at this time had gone up into the mountains to pray late into the night. But, he, but, it, but they say that at the same time he was praying, he was also keeping his eyes on the disciples and he saw that they were straining at the oars and fighting against the wind and so he decided to come down and help them. And again, according to Matthew and Mark, the disciples had left sometime between six and nine o'clock at night and, uh, and now he was going to them in the fourth watch, which was between 3 and 6 a.m. So they'd been out there a long time. They could have been rowing for possibly six to nine hours, and they'd only made it about three or four miles, according to verse 19. Notice it says, then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. So they were still a long way off of their destination, And at the very point when they were most fatigued and most frustrated, Jesus shows up walking on the water. Isn't that what always happens in your life, right? The moment you're most fatigued, you're most worn out, you're most frustrated, and you're like, Jesus, where are you when I need you? And next thing he shows up, right? And yet when he showed up, Matthew and Mark record that at first the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost, they, they couldn't believe their eyes. They, they didn't, their first thought was not, hey, look, there's Jesus walking on the water. You wouldn't naturally think that either, right? Because that's not how our minds think. People don't walk on water, so it had to be a ghost. And so they were scared out of their minds. So they were frightened, they were terrified. And so Jesus had to quickly calm them in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And when he said, It is I. He was literally saying, I am. I am. Which is, of course, that great 
Old Testament name for Jehovah, Yahweh, which Jesus often applied to himself, especially throughout the Gospel of John. And so he wanted his disciples to know that he was the mighty creator and controller and sustainer of the universe, that he had created the sea and he can control its waters and bring them safely to their destination. Psalm 107, verses 29 through 30, talk about how God has the ability to rescue sailors who are out on the open sea who think they're about to die and they're, they're at their wit's end. They don't know what to do. And God comes and he calms the storm and he brings them safely to shore. Just so you know, this was when Peter walked on the water. Matthew is the only one who records this. But uh, in the same account, in Matthew chapter 14, after Jesus said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I mean, you got to love Peter, right? Hey, that looks fun. I want to do that too. And if you're the Lord, if, you, if it actually is you, then you tell me to come out there. And so he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. So at first he was out there doing pretty good, right? But then he started going, looking around going, this is crazy. I can't do this. You, you can't walk on water. What am I thinking? So glug, 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 he begins to sink, right? And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then we got, when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. Verse 21, back in John, so they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You notice here that that there, there was, there's more than just one miracle going on here. There's lots of miracles. In fact, there's four miracles going on all at once, simultaneously. You got, you got Jesus walking on the water. You got Peter walking on the water. You got the storm instantly stopping. That doesn't happen, right? He gets in the boat, and boom, the, the wind stops. And then it says that they were immediately at the land to which they were going. It's like, boom, they were there. Now you say, well, explain that. Well, that's why it's a miracle. (laughs) You can't explain it, right? The best I can come up with is something from Star Trek, right? Where, boom, tell the transport, you're there. Just, you're there. You went from there to there in a moment's time, and it was like, whoa, we're here. Again, some people suggest, well, you know, once Jesus was on board and they were having a good time of fellowship, and, you know, time passes, you know, how fast time flies when you're having fun, and so... They realized they were at the shore before they knew it. Give me a break. Again, people try to explain away how Jesus walked on water. Some suggest he was simply walking on the shoreline. Just kind of walking along the sand, but from the disciples' vantage point, it looked like he was walking on the water. Others say he was just kind of walking on some stones that he had found. Others say that he was floating on a log. I don't care what you come up with. It it doesn't explain the disciples' response to what they saw, what they witnessed. Mark said that they were utterly astonished. Matthew says that they worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. 
That was what he was getting at. That's why he performed that miracle in the sight of those disciples. They wanted, he wanted him to, to, them to worship him and be absolutely convinced that he was God's son. Why? Because they needed that reassurance that he was truly the Messiah because he had just refused an opportunity to go for it, to be the Messiah. I mean, I think they had some broken expectations probably. They were probably saying, hey, this crowd's, I like this crowd. They're, they're right on. Yeah, this is going to be cool. If they, if they make him king, then guess what we'll be? We're going to be part of his court. We're going to get to be on the inside, right? We're going to be prestigious and powerful. And so the disciples, you know, they would joss, joss, jockey for position and who was going to sit at his right and left hand. There was that same messianic expectation and hope in their own hearts. And here he had this golden opportunity to take charge and to be made king, and he rejected it. And I would imagine they're out in that boat that night, scratching their head as they're rowing. They're all thinking, well, is he or is he, isn't he? Is he or he, isn't he? I mean, I don't get this guy. One minute I think he is the Son of God, and then, then I don't think he is. And sometimes I think he's the Messiah, but then I think he's not the Messiah. Well, what is it? And so he was re- reassuring them that he was indeed the Messiah. And I think he was also strengthening their commitment in preparation for the things that he was going to say at the end of this chapter that would cause a massive defection among the ranks of his followers. That crowd that Jesus had sent away, the majority of those people were going to be gone the next day because they couldn't hang with what Jesus had to say about him being the bread of life. And so he was strengthening these his disciples, the 12 disciples, the, their commitment to him so they wouldn't be led astray or, or, or get caught in this groundswell of people leaving. And so come back next week and we'll see how Jesus applies this miracle of the bread to himself, presents himself as the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy the hunger of the human heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. Thank you for these miracles, which we've all heard of before. Maybe some of us even grew up hearing about them, but maybe this morning you would cause them to have a totally new and fresh impact in our lives, Lord. There may be someone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ. They've never been truly convinced that he was who he said he was. But after hearing what they heard today, Lord, that they want to repent and they want to commit their life to Christ, Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance, you would grant them faith, that they would be willing to turn away from their sin and trust Christ alone for their salvation. And Lord, for those of us who who know you and love you, Lord, that this would reassure us, Lord, that we're not out of our minds following some man who lived 2,000 years ago, that we're not just just wasting our time, but, but this guy's legit. And Lord, that we would just be strengthened in our commitment to Christ and emboldened in our witness for Christ. And Lord, help us to learn to trust Christ when we lack provision, when we need protection and deliverance. 
that we would remember that Jesus is always there. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he is truly sufficient, more than sufficient, to meet any need we have.